0: Time to say goodbye. Hello,
1: welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is, oh wow, we're already in August. It's August the 3rd. Um, It is a Monday. I think we're going to have this out to you by tomorrow. Uh, Some news about where our whereabouts. Tammy and I have changed positions in the country. Tammy, where are you right now?
2: I am in Missoula, Montana.
1: What What's going on in Missoula, Montana?
2: Very exotic. I am here to teach this semester at the uni- University of Montana's J School.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I obviously knew that. I don't know why I'm trying <laughs> to sound like I didn't know that. <laughs> but uh, how do you... It's radio connection. I actually never talk outside outside of this. Yeah, I'm just the clueless host that says, wow, Montana, huh? Where is that? Uh, Missoula. How how are you liking Missoula so far? I've been there a few times, and um, I found it to be a nice, uh, you know, it's like one of those places where if we were white and liberal, it would be the type, perfect type of place to live if you could just live there and just blend in and not be like one of eight Asian people there. How is it over there? <laughs>
2: It's good. I got here yesterday, so I don't really know, but your description checks out so far.
3: <laughs> have you? Yeah. That- have you looked up Asian restaurants in town, or Asian groceries?
2: I need to. I had done a search earlier that was not successful, but my mom swears there is an Oriental grocery here, so I'm, I'm going to go shopping <laughs> there soon. <laughs>
1: Well, it's a big university, right, for Montana. I mean, it is the University of Montana. So I imagine that there's probably some of that stuff, at least. I think so. I mean, it can't be a total desert of, you know, I don't know. What do they sell in Montana? Like, leather goods and boots and... Dice (laughs) and meat. Farming equipment. Yeah, I mean, I, I... Yeah, Missoula, Asheville, North Carolina, um... Jackson Hole, Wyoming, although that's a much more expensive place. Yeah. You know, there are these places around the country where a type of white person's like, I'm going to escape to X. You know, and it, it's on that list, I think. Totally. But the thing is, nobody actually moves there. Um, <laughs> except for you, Tammy, apparently.
2: I did it. Are, are
1: you, apparently. I mean, what? What? are you liking it there? Does it feel less coronavirus-y because it's so spread out?
2: Well... Andy and I were discussing like what it looks like for college teaching, because we're supposed to be in person here, which I don't think is really going to happen, or at least it's not going to last very long. But I'm kind of freaked out about that, so I'm not sure. What,
1: why don't you think it's going to happen?
2: Because I think there's too much anxiety around it because the Montana rates have been going up. I mean, they look minuscule because the population uh. is so small, but it hasn't been going very well. <sighs>
1: Yeah. Remember like South Dakota at the beginning of this was just like, we're just going to let it go. Like we're Uh, going to pull a Sweden and the governor of South Dakota was like, we're not going to do any social distancing or shutdown. And everybody was expecting South Dakota to be wiped off the map from coronavirus. And in some ways it was because it hit the Native American reservations there very hard. Yeah. But then in other ways, it's just like there weren't enough people in South Dakota for it to actually matter. (laughs)
0: Right.
1: (laughs) You know, and South Dakota kind of had the same fate as a lot of other states. Missoula, though, like Missoula has what, like 80,000 people in it, maybe 100,000 people in it.
2: Yeah. And so with the students coming in with tourist season picking up, there has been spikes. So we'll see. I guess I'm now part of the old population compared to the age of the students that should be concerned about their health.
3: Does it get um, yeah. traditionally? Does it get a lot of international students? Because I think overall international student numbers I saw are going to be, for obvious reasons, I guess, down like 80 90 percent this year. Yeah. You know, like, and the visa stuff isn't helping anything.
2: Totally. I think it. 80 90 percent. Yeah.
3: It's going to be dramatic.
1: If you don't, if you can't talk about it, then <laughs> don't talk about it. But, um, what are some of the precautions that they're doing in the classroom for for? Teachers, like, do you have to teach wearing a mask and shit?
2: Yeah, you do. So, I guess the plan right now is that I'm gonna wear a mask and a face shield, and open oh, wow. all the windows in the classroom, and have the students super spaced apart, and maybe oh also God. do some online teaching and like meet outside.
3: <laughs> what is the point in Montana? of Montana at this point? What is the point of doing that? I don't as, know. Rather than just doing it online.
2: I know. I mean, I think a lot of professors are going to end up being online and some some yeah. have already designated that they will but yeah. because this is like i'm just here for a semester i'm trying to do a good job yeah you know
3: i think mm-hmm. if everyone is mostly outdoors when the weather is good and then moves to online later mm-hmm. i think that's yeah. totally fine that's a good that's a good point but to yeah to do this fake indoor thing with like i know three layers of protection on it's like why why are we doing this I everyone is just so any are
1: you are you going, are you, is your school doing, um, is your school doing indoors? Overall, is, yeah,
3: it's a hybrid model. Um, we'll see what happens. We, we, we The paperwork is still being sorted out where more and more students are requesting to go online. Mm-hmm. So my prediction is, um, well, I don't have a prediction, but I think it's plausible that most of these classes will wind up online. And I think the weather is yeah. good for the next few months. I don't know how much outdoor space there is, but if you could host... An event, event, a class, a discussion outside. I think that's much safer than yeah. anything indoors, right? I mean, I think that's what the science is suggesting. Totally.
1: Yeah, um, indoor seems to be the problem, and you know, I think if you, I think if you did open all the windows, that it would probably be okay. Indoor would be better. Yeah. yeah. But you're in Montana. It's gonna get cold as shit. <laughs> it's
0: gonna get so cold. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's gonna. And there's gonna be like wind whipping over the tundra, you know, and like into, into your classroom yeah. while you're trying to teach these kids how to file a FOIA request. You know, that sounds like a, You can't do outdoor classes in Montana. It's true. Uh, and at the same time, it seems like something like journalism, teaching it remotely um is like not great I mean I had a I I actually did a a thing this weekend where I talked about like a bunch of Asian kids in um LA they're in high school they're wonderful kids and I'm very glad I did it but it was like uh you know like it was basically me teaching a class to them Mm. right and the class was about leadership which I didn't realize when I signed (laughs) up but then I was just like I talked to the organizer because it was my friend my cousin's friend and I was like I don't know if I'm the right leadership person. <laughs> and then she's like, well, what do you want to talk about? And I told her what I want to talk about. She's like, just do that in the context of leadership. And so I did, and it was, it was totally fine, and the kids were wonderful. But the thing that I realized that uh, teaching this thing or talking to these kids over Zoom is that it is a little bit different in the sense that, like, and I, this is not a new observation or a particularly insightful one, but i felt like we were all taking turns you know yeah and it didn't feel like an organic conversation and it felt much more like discreet thoughts that were being layered on top of one another and then uh and then i couldn't do things like ignore people who kept saying the same thing over and over <laughs> again like you can do in a traditional classroom oh you mean classroom. like if
0: they raise their hand <laughs>
3: Like yeah, like yeah, because they us. have that
1: little button that you can raise your hand with, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, well and, you can pretend uh, like you
3: don't. Oh, I don't understand technology.
2: <laughs> That's what you've yeah. been doing,
3: Andy. I, I just, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Jay does that to us on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Are you, are you, uh, are you, are you teaching right now, Andy?
3: Uh, we're gonna begin in a couple weeks. Yeah, I oh, think wow. a lot of schools are starting early, maybe on this assumption that winter is the worst time and yeah let's get it let's take advantage of august
1: do you think that it matters if like the americans who are of college and high school and middle school age miss a year of instruction because there's that's been like a big discussion and it seems like the way that the um, people who are more on the side of social justice are arguing is that it will make a huge difference because the kids that will be the most behind are the kids who are you know poor um they wouldn't say poor they would just say whatever identity group they're a part of you know like black kids will be farther behind than asian kids because they wouldn't also distinguish that asian kids can also be poor right so are you talking about what do you think about that primary school or
3: high school or college or what all
1: school all school i think the argument is being made that like if teachers don't go back to work yeah if teachers don't go back to school that the loss of year a year of instruction is gonna be catastrophic for an entire generation. Like what do you think about that? I, I'm having a hard time parsing it honestly.
3: Um I think it's probably true on some level. I my I guess I think my attitude is you just wanna keep it moving along, even if it's imperfect. And maybe people will realize like all these small little things, all these like checklists of things you're supposed to learn at this age are kind of, you know, not that realistic or not that important like you can learn multiplication one year later it's fine um, but in general I, I think from an economic standpoint yeah you, you don't want to create this like backlog of you know like a loss a, a, not a lost generation but you know like everyone is like kind of the job market now just has like twice as many people as it normally would okay. have mm-hmm. and that sort of thing it's like
1: the, <laughs> it's like how the NBA draft is gonna have <laughs> right. that one year and like two years where they let in both high school seniors and college right. kids and so, like, you're going to have, they're going to have twice as much talent because uh, before those high school seniors would have had to go to college for a year, but right. now they can enter the draft. Yeah. So you have all the kids who are part of the old system and the new system going in at once. Right. I mean, I, I don't, uh, Tammy, what do you think? Like, do you think that it matters that these kids don't get school for a year because uh, they're, whatever they're going to get, it, we can all agree they're going to get a shitty year of yeah, school. Okay. Right?
2: Everyone's
3: going to get bad schooling this year.
2: Yeah. I'm pretty terrified actually for K through 12 kids, especially who are low income. I think it's going to make a huge difference. I mean, there's been a lot of research, even just in how much students lose over the summer when they don't have the opportunity to engage with material. You know, meanwhile, the the more higher income students around them are, are jumping ahead with other sorts of activities and I've seen that a little bit of it in my own education reporting about how much students can lose with a few months. Tim, sentences. why are you you're whispering? Hold
1: on. Can, oh. you, can you speak up a little? Yeah, Sorry.
2: Weird. <clears throat> I'm a little hoarse, um, too. Can so you hear me? You're saying what? Um, yeah, what I'm, really, I'm to, really concerned about students yeah, K through 12. I think like they've already lost a lot over the last school year, and... And now with the summer and the upcoming year, we know that they're not learning very much on these online classes. And I think it's going to make a huge difference because there's already the higher income students already have private tutors and other sorts of yeah. clubs that they're getting to. Um, I'm, I'm terrified.
3: Yeah, right. It's, basically yeah, it's interesting. A devolution away from universal education, right?
2: Definitely, and you know, I think the right wing is using this to try to privatize education further. We can see sure. that already. Yeah, well you know, true. the formation of like parent yeah. well, unions that are lobbying for vouchers, etc.
1: So, have you seen academics? Because I know that on Twitter, it's like a big deal, have you or a big topic conversation? Are there academics that you've been around or been in touch with who are considering just leaving the profession?
0: Yeah
2: really but, but
1: more so than usual because it, yeah, exactly. it, it, it's exactly acad- always
3: academics who are not not academics who are established academics who are still searching for a job which is a major part of the of the industry is that a swig of wine jay <laughs> no it's it's a no it's 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 a
1: gigantic seltzer okay <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: just a, it's a huge
3: seltzer it is it's a huge seltzer talking white wine That's in it. the podcast Um, (laughs) uh, I know I know people who are considering leaving precisely because they were uh, you know there's this like whole what's the what's the word like um, contingent labor pool of people who go from postdoc to visiting a professor's to adjuncts from year to year and I think those people are always thinking of leaving and I think the announcements from all these institutions that they're not going to hire for the next few years is going to signal to a lot of people, you should leave. Wow. Um, so I've heard, I've heard that from several individuals. Is there any truth to this
1: argument that's being put out forth by the anti-woke people um, that, and I, look, I did a little research of this into myself, so I'm wondering what you guys think, which is that the bureaucracy of ODI, which is Offices of Diversity and Inclusion, are taking up so much of the funding and the money at these universities that it's You know, that the gigantic bureaucracy is actually part, not all, but in part what makes it difficult for universities to hire and pay, uh, you know,
3: faculty members. Is that true at all? Yeah, I think it's I don't know specifically about ODI. I think the ratio of payment going to new development projects and new administrators is much higher than it was relative to faculty back in
2: the 80s. But signaling yeah. out bi- ODI right. yeah. makes sense, right? I mean, ODI is usually a tiny thing. I mean, first of all, I'm not a huge fan of ODI, but yeah. like when it exists, it's super small. <laughs> We're talking about like having seven provosts whose like job descriptions are completely murky <laughs> and are earning like $200,000 a year.
3: Or building like yeah. a football stadium no one wants exactly. to Exactly.
2: Yeah. Capital use. projects that are like useless. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, uh, apparently that's part of the problem here at Cal. Not here at Cal because I'm no longer there, but, you know, <laughs> next week I will be back at home. But uh, they did so much money to renovate the stadium that they're in such debt that they mm. kind of have to play the football season mm. because if they miss exactly. out on the TV money, right. they're going to go into some sort of insolvency. Yeah. Um, yeah, the people who do that are much bigger and much better paid. And the people who do ODI, but the ODI people always get the blame yeah. for all of this right. because, you know, right. people are race people are racist. <laughs> and yet at the same time there is a lot of ODI at this <laughs> stuff that <laughs> seems pretty useless. Yeah. You know, but I don't think it's a reason why people aren't getting a job. Right. I just think there's too yeah. many ODI officers in general. And that the <laughs> the more you build up this bureaucracy the more like Robin D'Angelo white fragility type of stuff that's going to happen. That's going to piss everybody off. Yeah. And like, it's just weird because I can't really get my head around it because it does seem like, of course, every single university is going to build up their ODI right now because they want to be uh, cancel proof. Right. Uh-huh. But they don't like want what happened at the university of Missouri, for example, that happened at their university but at the same time. I don't know. A, they don't really have that much money to build up their ODI, and B, I just don't know if like this sort of stuff is really that appealing to anybody. You know, like uh, it's that same divide that I have in my head where I can't figure out. Look, White Fragility is the number one book. Everybody's reading it, and all these uh, corporations have invested in forcing their people to read it. Mm-hmm. And yet, at the same time, I can't. When I read things, and not just Twitter, but like every main major publication, I can't find one nice thing written about. <laughs> uh, yeah written about white fragility you know everyone seems to hate it so it's it's one of those things i'm sure that what it is is that there's a bubble that i'm part of and most people like white fragility (laughs) and yet at the same time i'm not sure if that's true that's usually my opinion
3: you see that nick cannon is reading barry weiss's book on anti-semitism that's that's (laughs) That's perfect encapsulation (laughs) so yeah we, we can't actually judge what most people read (laughs)
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. I would hope that Dick Cannon was too famous To have to read Barry Weiss's book You know, despite, obviously uh, Dick Cannon seems to be a real anti semite like <laughs> You know, I, I hope that he would read a different book Than
0: Barry Weiss's right.
1: book <laughs> Um, okay Let's get to our first topic Um, after much, uh Delay here, uh We, last week we did, uh We did a show on TikTok, and the reason Part of the reason we did that was because we didn't really know how much longer TikTok was going to be around, but also You know, we just <laughs> wanted to do something that was fun that would allow you guys to play along but um this week tiktok is much more in the news and it was because uh trump said that he was going to ban tiktok around tar- uh around the time when bill gates was and microsoft i guess not bill gates but microsoft was being rumored to purchase tiktok right and um it spewed a ton of different types of reactions the funniest one i thought was uh the people saying that it was because Trump didn't like Sarah Cooper, no. you know, like Sarah <laughs> Cooper is that comedian who lip syncs uh, Donald Trump. What do you guys think about the Sarah Cooper thing? That thing drives me crazy. Like I don't understand why it's funny.
3: I watched a couple. It was amusing on a, you know, visceral level. But beyond that, I don't know. <laughs> what, what, can you explain what visceral level means?
1: <laughs> Cause it, it didn't even get me on a visceral level. So I just didn't get it.
3: I mean, I chuckled, but I think people are attributing a lot of political significance to it. Yeah. Based on the fact that she's a black woman. So she's like the opposite of Donald Trump, and therefore it's the resistance. Right. All right, right. So you're you're a you're a TikTok class reduction. So you think for <laughs>
1: TikTok identity politics are not funny. All right, Tammy, what, what do you what about you? I feel
2: like Sarah. I think Sarah Cooper yeah, is like. Do you a, think that?
1: I don't know why I even care if you think Sarah Cooper is funny. Like, but I do want to know. Yeah, you know. I also. <laughs> what are your thoughts on Sarah Cooper?
2: I didn't realize people had strong feelings about it. I thought it was something you saw come up on your Twitter feed, and you're like, oh yeah, that's kind of cool. It's like a low grade SNL skit.
1: Yeah. Yes. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And it's like I don't know, but like so that was a ridiculous explanation. And then there are all these other explanations that were coming out that were around that type of thing, right? Which was like, Hey, do we uh you know, is it because too many people are mean to him on TikTok and stuff like that, or he doesn't want to yeah. see the teens organize around Tulsa? Exactly. All that's yeah. ridiculous, right? He was just trying to if anything he was mad at Microsoft and he was mad at he wanted to do something proactive against China and he wanted to do something that got a lot of uh, headlines i don't think he
3: was mad at microsoft i think he was helping them oh you think he was yeah helping he's What's plummeting that tiktok's value so that they can seal the deal um or slash tell tiktok you know either you sell to microsoft or we ban you hmm. oh
1: so wait what are are you saying like he's uh he's like are, is this like part of the bill gates illuminati no it's on the near attention you know, bill gates, <laughs> is he... that might be part of <laughs> bill it also gates. Bill Gates is the actual puppet master of yeah. the world. It's no longer George Soros. <laughs> yeah. So that Bill Gates is telling George Donald Trump to yeah. tank, TikTok guy, so he can get a
3: date. Gates, or so he
1: can get a sale.
3: Gates and Ballmer are gone. I don't think I don't know who runs Microsoft anymore. But uh, yeah, I don't know either. No, it was on the front page that Microsoft talked to talked to Trump, and they want to buy TikTok. Like it's, I think. Uh, uh, I think you predicted this that this was a joke and it was not gonna actually happen. That there's uh oh, yeah. right there's some Oh you mean the ban? The ban, yeah. The, the ban oh, was yeah, just yeah, Trump yeah. Saturday night on the airplane saying, Yeah, I think we're gonna ban TikTok.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. And then
3: people ran with it. And then, you know, forty eight yeah. hours later, this is the real story. Yeah. Has the sale been fin- finalized yet? Is it done? No, I think it's it's all speculative at this point.
1: Okay, so from a geopolitical sense, right? I read this article in The Atlantic that I thought was quite good that we can put in our show notes. And, and I thought it was good because I thought the person was making arguments that don't quite seem right. And so it's a good thing to wrap your head around. But also, you know, he was he they're like kind of defending them in an interesting way. So um, this is about, uh, you know, like the sort of the geopolitical part of this story, which is and I'm quoting from the piece now. Most Americans, inside and outside the beltway, no longer perceive China as a potential partner, but as a a strategic enemy. Trump rails against Beijing on Twitter and at news conferences. The old policy of patient engagement is derided as naive liberal fantasy that did nothing more than hand wealth and power to an authoritarian adversary. Seen through this prism, Zhang and TikTok embody not what's gone right with China, but what's gone wrong. TikTok, an app largely devoted to viral dance crazes and teenagers pranking their cats, As part of the China threat, the sharp high-tech edge of the communist regime penetrating deep into American society, stealing its secrets, monitoring its citizens, and aiding Beijing's nefarious aims. And so, egged on by a growing consensus against Beijing and Washington, as well as by hawks in the Republican Party, the Treasury Department is poised this week to recommend action to be taken against the app. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin has said, Americans on TikTok need to worry about it because it is a surveillance apparatus for Beijing. Senator Josh Hawley, a Missouri Republican, told me it is a Trojan horse on people's phones. <laughs> All right. So, like, what, what do you guys think about this? This idea that, like, what we should think about with TikTok is just how different it was than, you know, five years ago when we were really kind of welcoming and wanting, you know, Chinese entrepreneurship. And anyway, what do you think? Um, well, why don't,
3: why don't, I thought the article was kind of persuasive um, on the grounds that uh, this is what America wanted originally and now it's like now it's just kind of this victim of bad timing with Sinophobia rising I guess and com- competition uh, I don't know I thought it was persuasive I think it, uh, I think it was a very uh, well it's persuasive like you know the like what he was arguing was persuasive but he's leaving out I think the author of this piece was leaving out a lot of concerns people otherwise might have about TikTok, um, that uh, in like there are laws that say that to, if the Chinese government wants access to the data, then the company would have to hand it over. Right. And, and I think the mm-hmm. article quotes the you know Zhang Yiming, the the founder, as saying like, "No, we wouldn't do that." But like that sidesteps the legal question that they would have to. And then people are also concerned that. ByteDance, the you know the company, just like every other Chinese tech comp- tech company, um, has participated in some form with the re-education camps in Xinjiang, which is kind of what you would expect anyway. Like all these companies, yeah. all these Chinese companies are all bound up with bad stuff in China, just as American ones are in the United States. So the article I thought was like the most optimistic portrayal of TikTok possible, but I think it left out a lot of, It was a bit simplistic. It left out a lot of um, legit criticisms one can make about TikTok.
2: What do you mean by optimistic?
3: Or not optimistic, but yeah, pro-TikTok, let's just say. Uh Like defending them and saying that, kind of implying... There's a couple of these pieces. Another one was in Wired um, that said that it's kind of hypocritical for the United States to try to ban TikTok because... TikTok, TikTok is just the Chinese version of American tech companies, um, and you know, I, I honestly don't yeah. know. I don't know, I don't, know, I don't know how I feel about the ban. Um, I'm because I just, I don't think I know enough. But I think these articles are putting forward the best possible defense of TikTok, but are leaving some information out that,
0: mm-hmm.
3: uh, quite frankly, I don't know who has that information, like about what TikTok actually does.
2: Yeah,
1: Tammy, what do you think? Do you think these? Do you think that the press is being too kind to TikTok?
2: I think I get a little bit confused generally in these debates about the U.S. internet versus the Chinese internet. Um, I was saying to Andy J that our mutual friend Joe Bernstein wrote a good piece last year about in BuzzFeed about the China China internet versus the American internet and kind of what that means. But in the ep- opposition that's always framed, I just come back to the hypocrisy around the american companies and feel that i guess i'm i understand that because of the laws in china requiring corporate cooperation with the government on you know surveillance matters and stuff that that is like a thing that we should take very very seriously but i also feel like the american companies have (laughs) done so much to you know to erode our democracy and to violate our rights so i I don't know. I I I sometimes feel like we're in a little bit of like we we in conversations outside of China are extremely critical about Silicon Valley, but then when we started talking about the Chinese internet and Chinese tech companies, we're suddenly like, "Go Google," and it's just very yeah. strange to me. And I so I I sort of struggle with it. And I so I would put TikTok in that framework for me. I, I don't yeah. quite know how to process it in terms of the geopolitics.
3: I think there's two separate questions. Um, and when people defend or criticize TikTok. It's important to kind of figure out like what question they're trying to answer, because a lot of the basic question is should these companies have access to all this data mm-hmm. and feeding them to all these governments that do terrible things? And I think yeah. the question is obvi- the answer is obviously no, um, and that is a reason to oppose TikTok. But That's also a reason to oppose Microsoft,
2: right? Yeah,
3: owning TikTok. The separate question is, you know, should Microsoft be able to buy TikTok? Should we? Sure. Yeah. Is, is China and that basically is the question of do you believe the Chinese government? is worse than the US government. And I think that's a trick question. We should not <laughs> uh, get we should not get tricked into saying things like, it's good if Microsoft with their contracts with ICE and the Pentagon has Seriously. our TikTok data.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I I'm with you because there's a lot of memes going around like saying like, oh, I only will consent to have my data stolen if it's by a, a United exactly. States national <laughs> corporation. And so I, I saw that and I was like, okay. I think we can agree at this point, even though my general rule is that uh, we can't do two things at once. You know, it's my it's my new rule of life. <laughs> you can't chew gum
3: like, or chew, chew Yeah, and when up.
1: people are like, "Well, I think we can chew and uh, we can walk and chew gum at the same time," and like, I would not be so quick to assume that. <laughs> it seems like we can't, especially in protest spaces. I find that when people say we can focus on both, I'm always like, "But you can't," yeah. you know, and we know we can't. And you're just saying that so you can ignore the other thing. Yes. And that's why you say it, you know? But I think this is truly an instance where we can probably say both are bad. And the, the, I agree with you, Andy. I found that piece in the Atlantic to be kind of strangely apologetic, right? Yeah. Where it was like, well, China's not going to do anything with this data. And it's like, who told you? It, 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 like, is China writing this article? It <laughs> felt like very
0: strange. I <laughs>
1: I was like, I don't trust China at all. Now, do I trust them more or less than Microsoft? I don't know, you know, like it actually is weird because I actually would believe that if China could do worse things to me with my data, that they probably would. But then I also just think like, what's China going to do with my fucking data on my phone, (laughs) you know, like, uh, like they could, like that would actually affect me personally outside of emptying my bank account or something like that, you know, which is not what we're talking about. And so, um, I think, I don't know. I'm sure that there's some like ways in which China could do worse to me because uh they're they're seen as like a rival or whatever like that but that sort of geopolitical nationalistic lens to it is not interesting yeah. to me and this was since i'm totally just self-interested right and as a self-interested person i'm just like i don't both of them are bad yeah you know right. i don't actually care if one's worse than the other yeah
3: i think the the key here is that this is a way for uh the, the way this conversation is structured is a is a way to kind of Again, trick people or lure people into identifying with the government.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: When I don't see any reason why you should identify with either government, like you know, you should be in the, you're in the U.S. You pay taxes, you follow the laws, but like there's no reason you should adopt the geopolitical concerns of the Pentagon as your own geopolitical concerns, right? Unless you really, you know, actually, you know, have those concerns. Uh, like I think if you are suspicious of TikTok or all the Facebook, all these apps on your phone, by all means, you know, use telegram or signal and you know navigate those security concerns your own way but i think once you start getting into what should governments that do bad things do to other governments then you're kind of sort of um you know you're handicapping yourself you're putting yourself into a position where i don't see the need to adopt the position of the united states federal government
1: do you along those lines one thing i want to ask you tammy is just like do you think it matters anymore that Trump has gone back to using saying the China virus
2: <laughs> or that Louis Gomert gets it and then says, "I got the Wuhan flu." Um, yeah,
1: you yeah. Said that? Like, does it matter <laughs> like do the do the things that we talked about four months ago as being signals of like rising hate crimes like do, does it matter?
2: I would have said no i think when i was in washington and now that i've driven through eastern washington and idaho and <laughs> western montana i think maybe slightly i saw some <laughs> crazy signs on the way
3: here did you get any like looks? what
2: my favorite one was what listen did you see? to f- uh, watch fox news fair and balanced that yeah. was great. Um, but that's not. No, I know. Oh, this is okay. No. Poles, so you didn't see anything no, like get Chinese, no, get no, the Chinamen
3: out. Right? Well, okay, well yeah, there was some, was some poll recently released that says something like 10 years ago, 40% of the country had negative views of China, and now it's like 80%. Hmm. So.
2: I think the TikTok yeah, the... talk thing, too, Ta- just has. I think there's a real anxiety around programs that affect youth. Hmm. You know, I, I really think that that yeah. is something in the American psyche that we are we are just so nervous about, like the Baidu sense stuff. We are like, oh, that's kind of consenting adults or marketplace stuff. And now but oh, my God, my kids are doing spending all their yeah. free time creating stuff on this Chinese app and people get really yeah. freaked out. I, I sense like that a little bit from the, the, the commentary and from the way people talk about it.
1: Yeah. They think it's gonna be like mind control. Oh, a little bit. Yeah.
2: It's a little like and that They can war like brain, slip stuff exactly in there. Like mind washing.
1: Who knows? Stuff. Maybe they can. I mean, would I let my child <laughs> if she was twelve years old be on TikTok? Absolutely not. Really? Yeah. You know? Uh, yeah, I'd be like, get the fuck off that shit and go like, <laughs> go, like go like climb up in a tree. What does she you say? Know, be like a, I learned be it a from you, Dad. dad. <laughs> I learned yeah, I, look, that's not gonna be a problem. I am I am I am doing a phone detoxification? Uh, platform. I, it's part of my thing of trying to be the most like obnoxious I can possibly be on Twitter. Is that I want to make the I want to make the app unusable. <laughs> for it's, already, it's already getting bad. I like pissed off a bunch of anime, Rick and Morty, leftist podcast, leftist fans, and they're like relentless. They will not stop. So I've just been like kind of kicking the beehive a little bit. Every time they tweet, I just say, Do you "Remember when you got really mad at me?" And then they start swarming again. <laughs> And, like, (laughs) it's been so weird to watch because, like, you can just, at some point, you just be like, guys, I'm just kidding. And they're like, no, you're not. (laughs) You know? And they they have, like, no sense of irony or anything like that, which is weird because you're like, I thought you guys were, like, the Bernie bro irony dudes, you know, who are like, but they're not. They're, like, so sincere about stuff. (laughs) And so sincere in trying to, like, attack somebody that they see as part of the mainstream media but the funniest part of their attack on me was that a lot of them were calling me like a failure you know it's not that i'm not a failure but it's just like (laughs) what type of fucking leftist are you you're mad at somebody that they're not successful enough in like a capitalist bullshit media system like like that's your that's your critique it doesn't hurt my feelings i just you know i worry about the state of the period of your own politics (laughs) at that point but yeah i am trying to do a detox here by trying to be as toxic as possible <laughs> and um <laughs> and it's not it's not working i don't think anyone i don't know it's i'm not sure everyone can what tell did
3: you, you tweeted about a sonic youth yesterday or two days ago
1: yeah two days ago yeah that one was uh i was just trolling and then people get music writers are I like know. i don't mean to make this all about my twitter feed but like Music writers are fucking awful. Yeah. You know, like I I know a lot of them, and so for the ones that I'm friends with, just like you know, I'm not talking about you, but like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, but like I just find it so weird. You know, like it's like all these. It it's not everyone. You know, but like a lot of it's just white guys who are so afraid to talk about black music, but they have to talk about black music, and so they build this entire infrastructure like of pitchfork. like of of taste around themselves so that they can say these things, you know? So that they can like comment on fucking Drake or Bad Bunny or something like that in a way where they won't feel like they're gonna get canceled or they'll feel, they feel confident in saying it. And so it's just like totally side language that has nothing to do with the music. It's a performance in itself. The problem with that, there's nothing wrong with like meta writing, right? That it's not actually about the subject, but it's about the performance and the feelings of the people within that group. But the problem with music writing is the writing fucking sucks, (laughs) you know? And so then it's nothing. It's just a bunch of like kids who went to fucking Vassar, you know, writing this shit, which is basically just like, how do I, how do I fit into Bad Bunny's music? It's like, well, you, you fit into it by listening and enjoying it. But like the idea that you fit into it culturally in some sort of meaningful way, you don't, you know? And then your, like, five-layered, like, meta worry about it is not interesting to me. I'm sorry, mm. you know? It's just fucking boring. It's like the k Like, if, can you imagine they did that with K-pop Tammy? Which is, like, <laughs> a bunch of K-pop fans, like, <laughs> writing about whether or not they finned a Korean culture. It's like, listen, just listen to music. It's fine. Call yourself Korean. I don't care. I, I In fact, we need more Koreans here in America. <laughs> the last thing that I care about, though, is this, like, way in which you're trying to do it in this political way to be cool. Yeah. And if you're a shitty writer to boot, then, like, you know, like... The, I'm definitely not gonna have any patience for it. <laughs> that, I mean, that's I, enough.
3: That's interesting. I would when I was in high school, I read Pitchfork, and it was just like all white indie bands. And then now, when you read Pitchfork, it's like these are dated references, I guess. But it's like Kanye and Arcade Fire side by side, and then there is a sort that's of so dated. You're like eight years. <laughs> you're like eight years <laughs> behind here. Arcade I like, Fire. I like Pitchfork. <laughs> I think they do pretty
2: well. But
3: good. but it's interesting. Like, what is the projected image of their audience that Pitchfork has? Like and and as a, does it does actually track with reality? And I guess that's a, I don't know, but mm. like, I guess that's a good question. Like, when did this transformation happen? Because in the '90s, Pitchfork ignored hip hop. Yeah, yeah. Right, they just pretended it didn't exist, and Pitch yeah. they pretended yeah. pop music didn't exist.
1: Um, our uh, okay, Tammy. Speaking of which, let's move on <laughs> to uh, you wrote an article that. <laughs> um, I think that to move on to a more spicy topic I think we I think this is an interesting piece that you wrote um, it was about people of color, just something that we've talked about and I want to mm-hmm. tell the listeners here that I know this is something that we discuss quite a bit but I do think that it's worth discussing in the sense that I think it is for our Asian listeners and for our white listeners and black listeners everybody that like there is something that needs to be litigated here and I think that Asian Americans are in a unique space to litigate it, which is What does the term "people of color" mean? What are the terms that we're going to use going forward? Do those terms matter? And you know, the reason why I think Asian Americans are interesting is because all these terms basically seem to be invented now to try and keep (laughs) Asian Americans out. (laughs) Like, b—how do you spell it? BIPOC. BIPOC. Is it BIPOC? B-I-P-O-C. Like that thing—they just made it so Asians wouldn't be part of it. You know, it's just like just make like not just say like non-Asian minorities or something you know or uh, brown and black is another <laughs> that, one that was clearly crafted to keep east asian does bipoc out.
3: include latino latina people Does I, that i don't
1: does know does the i, I include it, i don't know
2: yes yeah, so no it's indigenous eyes it but depends like, it could be indigenous, on whether you're latina. part of the latinx community that rejects latinx and believes identifies as indigenous do you know what I'm saying? okay right exactly yeah so in your yeah. question i guess it's distinguishing like,
3: between like white white mexicans let's say Yes. Okay, and so exactly. Yeah.
1: So just to get the conversation rolling, Tammy, I'm gonna do something totally cringy. I'm gonna write. You can cringe in the corner. I'm gonna read from what you wrote, um, <laughs> which is recognizing the various strands in the warp and weft of our history alongside slavery and Black liberation should be possible without unraveling the into, or unraveling the whole into a quote, all lies matter. This more complicated telling incorporates those who defy stereotypes of color and race. Black refugees, Samoans, biracial Arabs, Asian adoptees, and Latinx immigrants whose families have been in America for centuries. The University of Connecticut philosopher Lewis Gordon, the author of Bad Faith and Anti-Black Racism, told me that it's crucial to be precise about how American racism manifests while understanding, quote, that there were internment camps of Japanese Americans, that there are reservations for indigenous people that were basically the inscription or inspiration for South uh, African Bantu Um In other words, look at what the empirical facts say about who is affected by police violence, incarceration, school segregation, evictions, or job discrimination in a given sector, and then organize on that basis. Quote, the fastest way to destroy coalition is by saying some of the, quote, people of color under the umbrella have anti-black racism. And my response is, that's old news. I don't need to be in a coalition with saints, Gordon said. All right, I found that to be a totally great part of your piece, which I also very much enjoyed. But, uh, Tammy, like, you know, not to press you too much on it, but, like, like, w- what is your sense here? Because it, it, Gordon seems to be part of, like, a growing number of people who are saying this right now, right? Like, do you think that there's a pushback against the sort of style of POC or be, by POC or... Um, <laughs> Or like, and, you know, we, we must address anti-Asian, race, anti-Black race in the Asian community. That that type of mm-hmm. monolith. Do you think there's growing resistance against that right now?
3: Also, Tammy, what's what's the feedback been to the piece?
1: Wait, I, I, <laughs> I asked a answer. question. She no, but it's the same question. Yeah, okay, Tammy, I mean, I what, think... what do you think? Is there a growing resistance to
2: it? So my my what I wanted to say is yes and. A caveat I will add to that is that when I when I say things like that, a couple of my friends are always like, I think it's a generational thing. And I can never come up with yeah. really strong arguments against them because I'm mostly in conversation with people I would say who are in their forties or older about this stuff. And especially when they're in their fifties and sixties and seventies, they just have like way more universalist politics than what i have been seeing in younger people. So I don't know. I mean I think I think there's a sense and an acknowledgement that i mean this is a crude term but what i'll call like a kind of like black exclusionary politics is not working for a lot of people and that we need to amend it and you don't need to be like that to honor what black lives matter is trying to do i think that's real and i think like people are pretty afraid to say it you know and i think like even in this essay and on this podcast like maybe we've been quite gentle about these like articulating this critique because it it is very sensitive you know you don't want to be called anti-black you don't want to be misinterpreted as you saying like one experience is more important than another, or all lives matter right and like i or saying like i don't want to say black lives matter like that's not what we're saying but how do we get to something where we're not having to constantly like draw lines around who gets to be there so i don't know what do you guys think annie what do you think
1: and Tammy, you cut out for a second. Andy, what do you think?
3: Um, I think that, I don't know, I, wa- I wonder if that generational thing is true that would resonate with, you know, what we've been talking about for a while with Mike Davis saying the same thing mm-hmm. about his generation. Um, I wonder if you could argue that if Black Lives Matter were to lead to the types of conversations that Tammy's article is pointing to, wouldn't that be the success of Black Lives Matter? Because their argument, the argument has always been that, uh, you know, going back to... Jay talking about doing two things at once. If you got to choose one thing to start with, you can't just start with everything that the symbol of violence and racism towards black people is so powerful that it can lead to a bridge towards larger structures of power and oppression. Mm -hmm. Then that would, and if, and if black lives matter can lead to that discussion about how it is manifest in other contexts, not specifically necessarily to um, the black American experience, then that would be a success story, right? But then, right, this is kind of the crossroads where there might be people participating in a lot of that sort of Afrocentric discourse who don't who don't want the conversation to to go in that direction. And I guess that is, I don't know. I, I yeah. wonder, like at these protests, if you kind of pulled people, you might get like a real split between people who would want it to lead to a bridge to bigger things, mm-hmm. um, or if other people would say, like, no, we have to keep the focus on uh, the particular experience of, you know, Flo- George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and uh, the black yeah. U.S. experience.
1: So, like, the central question that, like, if you want to put it in some sort of provoc- that you know, like as a provocation, I think the way to put it is to say, is there a way to for a protest that began with George Floyd to become a protest that will lead to the pushing for universal health care, for example, right? Mm-hmm. And do the politics that inspired that first protest actually stand in the way of having it go to universal care? Mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, um, and I, I don't know, I, I, I think that that is a difficult question. I think that people are generally, you know, they always try and say yes because they want to say yes. But I think that if they're honest about it, they will say maybe, maybe part of that is a roadblock, right? Um, I have did you follow what happened with the Portland wall of mom stuff? Yeah. Bev? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Dad>. <laughs> so for our listeners who don't know, I only know about this because, you know, during my 16 hour drive, when I stopped in Portland, my friend who uh, lives in Portland, who we went in their backyard and hung out for a couple hours, his wife is this wonderful woman and, and she is part of the Facebook group. I think I told you guys about this, that all this stuff started on, uh, it's like a face, Facebook Portland Moms group, and she was following the entire drama as it was happening on <laughs> Facebook. She was, like, she, was like, she was like, I would look up after like two hours of reading all the posts and be like, where are my kids? You know, because it was that engrossing. But basically, the story is that Bev was the woman who kind of started all of this. This woman named Bev, she is Mexican-American, and she started a, uh, she was like, what if we all went down there and helped protect the protesters, right? So that's how the wall mom started. And what Bev apparently did, according to people is that as all this was happening over like four days, so imagine how compressive a cycle this is, there's a lot of conversation that uh, Bev's sort of like deputies were all white. And so what Bev did was that Bev replaced him with a lot of, uh, with black women who were part of the group, which is I think a thing that we can all agree is a good thing to do, right? You can't have like Bev and a bunch of white moms running the wall of moms. If they're black mothers who also want to be involved in it, they should be in leadership positions. Mm -hmm. And so Bev does this, but then Bev without telling anyone in the leadership group uh registers this as a national nonprofit right and then s- <laughs> says i'm taking it national and then starts posting stuff like i'm trying to get in touch with Michelle Obama i'm trying oh to get God. in touch with Oprah <laughs> and then, and then <laughs> the deputies and all the people in Wall of Moms turn on Bev, you know, <laughs> and then this leads to this one night where uh, where uh, people commandeer the Twitter account for Wall of Moms and start talking shit about Bev, and they're like, Bev does not represent us. This is the movement, you know. This is the resistance to Bev within the Wall of Moms. <laughs> 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 oh, and then man. they started a splinter organization within Walmart. And the thing that was oh, amazing to me is that basically this is like 6 months of any activist organization compressed into right. say so, How did it happen so it's fast? Always, right. It's always what <laughs> happens is like the leader wants gets you know wants to go in, uh like is is accused of selling out, mm-hmm. you know, because and then and then like the splinter organization starts underneath it and then they <laughs> commandeer the comps and then they, the the is just about Outing, fucking original.
0: <laughs> <leader>. <laughs> um,
1: but I guess it, the part of it that was interesting to me was that, um, you know, the question was whether or not uh, Bev, as the conversation, the meta conversation that kept happening in that group, apparently was whether and what to do about the fact that Wall of Moms was so white, yeah. you know. And I think the thing that they couldn't really come to. A conclusion about although i'm sure that the discussion and i mean this sincerely i mean i think that the discussion is probably very productive and helpful for a lot of people is like how do we just come out and say we're a bunch of white moms who are doing yeah. this and the reason why we're effective is because the feds and the portland police bureau will not attack a bunch of white moms yeah. you know and we're using our power in this sort of way yeah. And I think that that's very difficult conversation to have, you know, really? because <laughs> especially when Bev is trying to get in touch with Michelle <laughs> Obama and to get on the hook for a But
3: Show. then, like, what is their mission oh, statement if they don't recognize the fact that, you know, they're white moms and they they would be an effective human shield? Like, do they, do they um, just I, not talk about it? I think that
1: some of them were more willing to say that than others. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I think uh, the problem is that when um, is that you have a lot of women moms who you can imagine being in Portland, who also were like, uh, "We're getting tear gas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't have time for this. You know, I'm going to go do my own thing, right?" And that they didn't want to sort of do the leadership structure that it would take to be like we're gonna have center all this in black women's voices, etc, etc, etc When they're saying wait I mean, the whole point of this is that we're not black women, mm-hmm. you know,
0: yeah.
1: and that's that's difficult yeah. It's like a difficult right. question. Yeah. I don't know. I feel um, but yeah the I love the wall of moms or mom Tifa. I think it's a wonderful thing <laughs> and I think that if there are people that committed in every city that we would have for example, universal healthcare. Yeah. You know, if there's like, and there's like rich white moms doing that in every yeah. city. Can you imagine? Yeah. And yet, at the same time, they are also the, the group most prone, I think, not because they're women, but because they're rich and white. You know, to, to, <laughs> to replicate every single problem yeah. in an activist space because they they're going through it for the first time. Yeah. Whereas I think other activist spaces can be like, wait, wait, we're about to do this thing that we always do. <laughs> the, the Wall of had right. they, just,
3: they blew through all, of the, <laughs> all, blew through the, all the seat bumps <laughs> yeah. it's like 10 stages, <laughs> yeah, ten stages in a weekend.
1: Yeah, they went through ten stages in a weekend. It's stage, <laughs> you know.
3: <laughs> it's like that Simpsons episode where Lisa's tooth becomes a human civilization overnight. <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. <laughs> um, uh, Terry, what's a, a okay? Well, to 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 address Andy's question, what has the feedback been like on this piece?
2: I think nobody's come at, at me directly. I mean, I think we... Maybe this makes me a coward, but, you know, like, in the story, I don't specifically cite examples of the people I'm critiquing the most harshly. Um, yeah. I think our thinking, when I say we, like, editors and me, was just to try to avoid conflict. Like, not to avoid conflict in the sense of the argument, but the personal conflict, you know? So I think yeah. because of that, I, I haven't had, like, huge brawls or anything. I mean, some, some stray stuff on social media. But I've gotten, like, inter- a lot of like interesting day. feedback from, like, Chicano people, especially, I would say. And Latinx people. Oh, what's that?
1: What's the feedback that's like? that been? Just
2: that, like, I guess, like, that they felt so- seen in the article. That they, you know, had felt, like, especially, like, as the Latino population is so large and important in so many places but hasn't had a chance to speak maybe, or felt like permission to speak around ICE and what's happening under Trump as much during Black Lives Matter, even though they've wanted to like connect the issues, um, that they were interested in doing more of that kind of work. Um, and and Asians too, but that's kind of like more to be expected, I think.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You got to be like Jay and just search for the subtweets.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know how to do uh, that. Like the, I <laughs>
1: I, I have this all like, mapped in my head in a way, and I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I want to know what you guys think about it, which is essentially that I think that we are seeing a natural sort of uh, solidarity, potential for solidarity, I don't think it exists right now, between immigrants, you know, like between people who are Asian, people who are Latino ge- generally, right? And um, that they will feel like they're, that they are aligned in a lot of things. Right. Especially when Trump is around. Now, when Trump's not around, I don't. Yeah. Know, yeah. Right. But right now, I think that that is a possibility for solidarity. And I think that within those two groups of immigrants or kids of immigrants, that their feelings about the Black Lives Matter campaign are very conflicted, you know, but the, they're not expressed very much. And I think they're conflicted in the way that, um, Tammy, you explained in the piece, which is just like, um, am I just an ally? You know, yeah, like. Uh, and what does it mean to only be an ally when you're not white, yeah. right? When you don't feel right. privileged and, uh, and then there's also a growing sense that if you take, and this is the second part of the map that I have, which is, I think that there's a sort of superstructure of, um, what the media puts out, the sort of like quote unquote woke media puts out. And I don't know how representative that is of anything. Right. But within right. that you have a very hardcore identity politics that is based a lot on oppression, Olympics type of stuff. Right and that it is it is alienating in some sort of way. And I think that for Asian and Latino youth who are interested in getting into social justice mm-hmm. issues that a lot of how they confront blackness is through that, you know, through what's put out in the in the media. And I think that that is having a distorting effect in a lot of ways and is making it harder for people to find those pathways of solidarity mm. that are so that would should be natural you know like our struggles are shared mm-hmm. but the messaging that they're hearing is that they're not shared and I think that a lot of bad faith people you know and here I'm talking about like you know like Andrew Sullivan and yeah. you know like people who are sort of in the center um, are basically taking the worst examples of the oppression Olympic stuff and race essentialist stuff and they're making an argument that it's all race right. essentialist yeah. stuff. And I gotta say, like the way that we can be honest, I think is that look, some of it and some of the most prominent things, right, like uh, like the you know like the in- introductory essay to the 1619 Project, things like that. There is an element of race essentialism in that sort of yeah. stuff, right? And that when we're constantly told that there isn't race essentialism in it, then we feel gaslit right. and then we start, you know, people start getting red pilled at that point, and that that conflict is. I don't know what to do about because it because it seems impossible to litigate to me.
2: Yeah. Do you guys think I that... Think, yeah, yeah, go ahead,
3: Andy. I think the strong reception to Tammy's piece, and again, it might be like selective, you know, interpretation of the of social media, but also I saw um, a piece by the conversation with Pankaj Mishra and Yitanwen, where they kind of made similar points, suggests to me that there is this sort of... These conversations are happening around the edges, and there might one day be sort of a more public reckoning Mm
0: -hmm. between
3: the two sides from the perspective of people who are not white but not black um, and who are sympathetic Mm. to BLM, but are sort of... um, Worried about the national. I think the main thing is it's nationalism, right? Is the division you're drawing, Jay, between immigrants and non-immigrants, which is to say that um, uh, the BLM project could be interpreted to suggest as an, almost an apology for U.S. imperialism,
0: right?
3: Um, as long as it's promoting like Black American interests, uh, where if for people who are whose families are overseas, they would have a different um they they have a different entry point to this whole discussion about patriotism and nationalism like as we were just talking about with tiktok i don't feel any patriotism (laughs) like i don't i i I keep my distance from all that stuff because i feel like that's a conversation that is you know kind of grafted onto my life and i decided like i don't really want to participate in it um and i think many immigrants feel the same way um or or at least they have a little sort of wariness and distance from it whereas a lot of the 1619 stuff or a lot of the black lives matter debate is about like whether or not america is great or how do we make america great or who is responsible for making america great and that's like a different conversation you know so i I don't know i I, I think there there might be more public um i mean i think it's going to happen i think there's going to be more of this publicly
1: Hmm. tammy what do you think do you think that you're part of you know the the first, the first <laughs> droplets of a of a rising tide. <laughs> so I've
2: never been part of that tide, but um, I well, I was curious to ask you guys if you know to what extent you think like capitalism is involved in this, in in the sense of the foundation funding <laughs> that leads to what I view as a kind of squatterization of certain viewpoints within movements. So, like for instance, yeah. like Black Lives Matter since two thousand and thirteen, like having certain parts of it now become like organizations that can be funded you know through soros and you know other places and i would say ford and you know there's all these huge funders that go through intermediary funders to fund these projects but in the in that in those money streams there's like huge divisions of like Black Lives Matter is a domestic program. Black Lives Matter has nothing to do with immigrant rights. Black Lives Matter has nothing to do with a globalization Mm. program or like a liberation program that's international. Right. So some of it to me, I think also has to do with that about like the ways that activists like and it's not their fault, like they need money to survive. They need to establish organizations and certain footprints to make work, you know. But I think that this, and this relates to Jay's point about, like, elite media portrayals and the ways that certain intellectuals think about that. That then kind of, like, loops back on to the choices that capitalists make in investing in these groups. And that's when, like, a black liberation that's actually, like, a third world U.S. black liberation is lost. Or black immigrants are, like, confused in that jumble of things. Yeah. Or Asians and, like, Latinx people, you know, they, they don't get seen as, like, abolitionists. I'm curious yeah, what you guys think like about
1: It's like how Ilhan... Yeah. We have a dedicated listener to the show who... Um, I'm not sure if I should name him on here, but, you know, it's a journalist, and he, he and I talk about the show quite a bit. Um, and he, you know, he pointed out that it, this is kind of captured in the way that a lot of the press talks about Ilhan Omar, mm. right? Where they talk about her in the context of being a black woman and don't talk to, about her as much in the context of being an immigrant Muslim, you know, refugee.
0: Totally, And
1: the reason why the right wing dislikes her is in part because she is a black woman, but it is mostly because she is a Muslim, (laughs) is a Muslim who who, uh, has a lot of strong opinions, for example, about the state of Israel, right? So um, I think that that type of distortion does happen quite a bit. And I do think that when that happens, people are very loath to point that out, right? Like, because they are afraid of, of what the blowback is, mm-hmm. the, the question that I have and the thing that I stay uh, I worry about is that I think that there is so much overlap now between the type of thing that you wrote, Tammy, and the thing that I think you, me and Andy believe, along with a lot of people, which is that there is a type of this type of identity politics and race essentialism that is almost mystical in its foundations, mm-hmm. right like where it does not really deal with the actual material effects that are happening within the world from structural racism, for example, which is ironic, or, or, or not deal with the fact that the United States is now a whole bunch of immigrants, right, who are either Latino or Asian, um, that, that, that 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 actually now has so much overlap with what the right is saying about this stuff, that there's going to be, yeah. like, the natural coalition is for, is for there just to be, like, a full-on coalition against this type of identity politics, which, if all it takes is a concession, like, hey, we'll have, like, universal health care, you know? <laughs> and then, like, a really broad right-wing policy, I think, can go forth, you know? Now, I think that the one benefit that we have is that our right-wing politicians are so, like, corrupt and so terrible that they would never do that, you know? <laughs> but I do think culturally that, you know, amongst young people, that is something that could really... interesting foment and you see that you know in some ways not at really strongly but you see that with all these sort of like anti paul like class reductionist leftists that yeah. you see but I think it will be stronger if it is buffeted by people of color quote right. unquote right if we're the ones making this argument then I think it's a lot easier for a lot of white liberals to also fall in line with
3: it who might feel
1: uncomfortable with this stuff. you're saying
3: the right could co-opt the immigrant uh, the immigrant vote or the immigrant constituency Um, Yes.
2: I think it's a real thing, but they'll only be buying off the part of the immigrant population we've already deemed good. And, you know, I think the challenge on our side in the Black Lives Matter movement is to say, yes, we affirm Black Lives Matter. We want to be part of that. But we also want to see we also want this to be a movement that is about state power generally. And that's when you get in like in the Latino discourse around like good immigrants, bad immigrants. And you say. Well, no, fuck this whole like dreamer versus like detainee thing. Like the whole thing is so broken. Yeah. And we it's not enough to be placated that like legal permanent residents can get, you know, social services within six months instead of like after the waiting period. Right. It's it's to say that we can't have jails for immigrants and we can't have these sorts of deportations and separations of families. So but yeah, I mean, I think what you're pointing to is if we if we are in this incredible moment where we are saying like Black Lives Matter and we all want to say that but we don't look at the police and ICE and the military as coextensive with one another, we risk losing a huge constituency that can fight violence.
0: Yeah.
1: So, like, what Chomsky would say <laughs> right, is that, I think, I'm Harper's letter I haven't signer. emailed him about this. <laughs> I have not emailed him Chomsky about whether he agrees with this, but I think <laughs> he would agree with this, which is that um, there's a way to look at Black Lives Matter and say that actually the reason why the media has glommed onto it in the way that it has, you know, the way reason why it is so uh, popular with the upper, upper middle class who consumes premium-tier media <laughs> is because it actually allows them an access to racial justice that makes them not question any of their priors or have to actually critique capitalism at all because capitalism benefits them, right? That if all you're doing is saying that police departments have to be defunded by 50%, then that's an abstract concern if you live in, say, Berkeley, California. You know, I don't give a shit if the police... It's not going to change my life in really any sort of way. And so you have this easy access into it, right? But it is not asking questions like, of real racial justice, which are like, you know, if you look at the coronavirus infections in the state of California, it's almost all Latino people, right? That sort of stuff is not brought up within the conversation around racial justice at all, right? Even though it's people literally dying because of structural quote unquote racism, which is that essential workers are not given protection and PPE, no one gives a shit because they're fucking Latino, you know, like, and uh, all those people, and they're living in congregate housing because there's not enough housing because housing's so expensive in the Bay Area and because of uh, housing discrimination won't allow them to live in different types of the areas, so they all have to live in like these, you know, essentially what are, I think, quote, unquote, ghettos. I think we can call them ghettos, right? Like, those are are the exact types of racial concerns that we're taught to care about, and yet they're completely absent from the conversations around this movement. And that, I think what Chomsky would say, and what I would say as well, I'll just say it, you know, is that there is a part of Black Lives Matter that is you know, would fit well into manufacturing consent, right? That yeah. the media is kind of coming out and setting the terms of the conversation in a way and saying you can't talk about X, Y, and Z because they don't actually want to confront X, Y, and Z, mm. right? They want to only confront the things that are easy for them to confront, yeah. which is this abstract demand about the police. What do you think about that?
0: Well
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that that's... De- I personally don't think that's debate. No, I don't think that's no, controversial. But I think that that... Yeah. I mean... Um, I don't... No, I think it's controversial. You think it I is? I don't think it's debate. Well, sure. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who listen to this and be like, that's racist. <laughs> that they would, that they, or that they would point out that that's not what the movement is. But let me tell you, you know, like I, this is from an area, of, this is from like a place of deep concern on my part. I've covered these protests since 2014. You know, I've participated in many of them since 2014 as a protester, not as a journalist. And I just don't see how that's not true yeah. at this point. You know, like just being honest about it, like that, I just don't see how that's not true.
3: Yeah, there's a lot of cringy things. Uh, th- there's a lot of, there's a real cringy element to the way that uh, the mainstream media has kind of glommed onto it and corporations have. When I watch these basketball games, I like keep muting whenever they go into like a two minute monologue. <laughs> oh
1: <laughs> anyway, actually, I want to ask you that: what has the what has the? You're a huge You're basketball there. What's the experience game. been like? They,
3: no, they, half the games are commentary about how all the players are like the leaders of social justice, and yeah. we wow. have these people who are completely unequipped to have this conversation, talking about all the progress that's been made in society as a result of the NBA. Oh my god! And yeah, I think it's. I don't know. I think anyone who's honest is like, this is this is dumb, and because of with movement. And it's completely like a, uh, uh, I don't know, like the equivalent of like pink washing or green washing. They're just like covering their butt to appear like good yeah. corporations yeah. and telling protesters, like, don't come for us because we're the good guys. When their MO is oh, obviously God, just yeah. to make a lot of money off of this or not get canceled. Um,
1: Tammy, like the, <laughs> you, you don't know this because you're like a rational human being that doesn't follow the minutiae of sports. <laughs> but like what is happening now is that like all the players are kneeling for the national uh-huh. anthem. And a couple of them don't. Oh yeah. And so now, instead of interrogating the person why who is kneeling, why they're or oh, yeah. why they're kneeling, all the focus is on the few people who don't yeah. kneel. Oh my god! You know, and that power flip, Holy like I shit. know, is like kind of like a debate brain thing where it's just like, well, that thing seems to have inverted itself, but it's still interesting <laughs> to yeah, me. Yeah. You know, it's like the these people like there's so this guy named Jonathan Isaac who's right. is a very promising player on the. Orlando Magic, who you know, it's very sadly blew out his knee yesterday, but he was not kneeling for the national anthem. And they asked him, "Why? Why aren't you putting on the Nike shirt, you know, in the Nike Just Do It font that says Black Lives yeah. Matter <laughs> and kneeling for the national anthem?" And he gave some very roundabout answer about how, like, he's a Christian, you know, and he thinks that there, that racism is part of a larger struggle for all people, and that like to be a person in Christ, you have to also think about the other struggles. And that he doesn't think that putting on a T-shirt and kneeling for the National Anthem has anything to do with any of that. And he got absolutely roasted, you know? And, like, by everybody in the media. And, I, you know, there's part of me that was, you know, kind of like a Barry Weiss brain thing. (laughs) Where I was like, I'm glad he didn't stand for the National Anthem. Because fuck that. Like, I don't care about what his reasons are, you know? But when everybody's doing it, and then the fucking national media, like ESPN... And like the New York Times are coming for you for not standing with a group. I know. I'm always going to be on the side of the person who's not standing with a group. I don't care his fucking reasons are. You know? <laughs> because unless the person is racist, I don't think Jonathan Isaac is racist. You know, Myers Leonard also, who is a white basketball player, but who grew up extremely poor. You know, this is very well documented. It's like a very poor white guy. Um, his brother was in the Marines. I don't think. I think Myers Leonard's thing around basketball before this was he was like the woke white guy, like the cool, you know, like the, <laughs> oh, really? the white guy that 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 was very popular amongst black players. And Myers Leonard also didn't kneel for the national anthem. He said that because you know he wanted to respect his brother's yeah. service. What? And so then everybody's like, oh, well, Myers Leonard is race. You know, know. there's a there's an interrogation of him as well. I don't I don't know. I just find it so weird, right? Yeah. It's like the NBA and Nike are teaming up together. Yeah to make sure that everybody kneels if you don't kneel then you're a racist yeah. you know and that all these reporters for these mass media corporations are going to come and interrogate you about why you didn't kneel and then all the processors of that sec you know the second level of information which are basically twitter people are going to like quote tweet the video of you not kneeling and <laughs> your explanation for it and call you fucking yeah. a racist like that's that's weird to but me I, it's super and weird. i
3: also feel like if i say this i i've been talking to my brother-in-law during these games saying like, oh my god, I hate this. And he must think I'm racist now, just because <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that's the that's the that's the dichotomy that's been set up. You know, either you're for this and yeah. you're on the good side or and then yeah. And the commentary is just like so cringy oh my god, listening to like horrifying. Mark Jackson oh, yeah. and Jeff Van Gunny talk about social justice. Like mm-hmm. I'm curious how many people to me it's like incredibly off putting maybe most people love it. But I'm curious if there are a bunch of people who are like what the fuck is this and are afraid to say mm. it. like i'm afraid to say it
1: except <laughs> on this podcast oh. yeah i know it's amazing how of a we've made like an uncancelable space <laughs> 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 i'm sure that's not true but i feel that way but like um i don't know Tim, what do you think as an outsider who's not into sports i,
2: mean, I, can't, I just keep thinking about how it's at disney world yeah and I can't yeah, really that's the get other thing. It's really beyond world. that. But I, but I also, you know, but you guys are watching it because you miss basketball. I mean, people are just, they really miss sports, right? Oh, the games yeah, are I've quite s- good. Yeah. I've watched
1: so much. People are I'm so excited a, I'm right now.
2: So I don't know. I, I feel like it's such a hard time, too. And I am trying not to, like, yuck other people's yum and begrudge their joy. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you that guys. Was totally
1: hypocritical. I've watched. I've watched so much basketball over the last two days. <laughs> the it's for really good. Is that a critique, right? Yeah, right. No, not <laughs> at all. I'm Not at all. I am writing an essay about this, but, uh, th- you know, the notes that I need to take for the essay were over on the first day, and then the stuff
3: I've just watched pure out ad- of pure <laughs> For good measure. Sure. <laughs> yeah I know. Yeah, uh, I mean, my whole attitude is, like, let's just not make basketball anything other than what it is. It's capless, ca- right. it's capless entertainment, and, like, Let's just be honest with it. I think that that,
1: that uh, I think that this is a ritual that the NBA has to do because Nike part of Nike's branding now is social justice. You know, oh my that's God. what it's it rough, you know. Um, what the hell? and Nike after Kaepernick, realized that they could have this massive impact but not impact. I'm talking about financial impact, right. right? By making a lot of their marketing around social justice. And so they do these totally anodyne ads which are like Megan Rapinoe, you know, like kicking wow. a ball or some shit. And then, um, and then, uh, and then they say together or something yeah. like that, right? That's their ad campaign yeah. right now. Holy and shit. I think that what the NBA is doing is basically Nike's ad campaign. Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. gross, you know? And I, know. I think we can resist that and we can say it's bad without being, like, joyless jacobins who are trying to destroy <laughs> the game that we love. Do you know on the
3: ESPN app? <clears throat> on the ESPN app, you can watch without announcers. Once I discovered that, it's, it's oh. great. Oh, that's a... That's what you do. <laughs> um, I,
1: I just turned out the sound anyway because I have a screaming three-year-old at all <laughs> so sure. I don't. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, Tammy, is there anything else you want to talk about this week?
2: Not really, but I wanted to ask you guys a follow-up on your Chomsky thing, which is just that at yeah. the beginning of this round of protests earlier this year, I think the three of us were actually pretty hopeful that this connected to anti-capitalism into a reexamination of American austerity and other things and now it sounds like maybe we're all more pessimistic about that while at the same time you know defunding is still in the air and sure it's not a you know it's not perfect but that's that's pretty big still and you know housing organizing still going on and there's some overlaps there so I just wanted to press you guys on that like is it just that you've participated more and seen how the discourse has gone and now we're less sure
3: Hmm. Andy, what do you think? I don't know. Um, I think the people who are mad are still mad. I think it's been kind of disappointing. I'm not disappointing. Predictable, I guess, how um, the Democrats are obviously the real problem here because they don't want to actually fight for any of this stuff, and they would be the party to fight for it, right? We're not going to ask Republicans to fight for it. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know, as, as we get closer to the election, I think I'm getting, like, just more and more jaded with the Democrats, this current generation of Democrats doing anything. On the other hand, I guess you could also say, like, glasses half full in that there are more, it seems like more and more progressives um, are winning, which would reflect some sort of greater social sentiment in this direction. But, yeah. you know, we can always play this game.
2: Hmm.
3: Terry, what do you think? I
2: don't know. I mean, I definitely want to hear what you think, Jay. I... I guess I'm still a little more optimistic than, than what you were saying about you, don't, you think that this movement now has kind of backed out of any larger analysis than just like essentially police reform again, like police reform part two. I, I think there's still an opening to do more than that and that what people are talking about is broader than that.
1: I don't think that it's the movement itself has backed out of that. I think yeah. that the media that is covering and discussing the right. movement is backed out of that. Now, in terms of police reform, I think that the stuff that's happening in Seattle right now is great. Yeah. You know, there are real proposals to change the poli- way that policing is happening, also in Oakland mm-hmm. as well, and also in Portland, right? And so, it, but what's interesting about Portland and Seattle is that they're so white, yeah. you know? Yeah. So like, <laughs> um, if the Seattle uh, Police Department radically changes, it's like it's just such a strange outcome yeah. that the one that the most radical change would be in Minneapolis and in uh, and in Seattle. Right. And so, you know, like there's that old Chris Rock joke about Minneapolis. And he's like, the only black people in Minnesota are Kirby Puckett and Prince. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Both of whom are dead, you know, sadly. But, you know, at the time they weren't. But um, (laughs) that would be a strange outcome. But I do think that the energy of this really will change some police departments, right, going forward. And I think, but I don't know. I think it's just so hard to judge because it's such a disparate movement. And what it is in Atlanta is different than what it is in Seattle. But, yeah, I do think that, you know, if we're being honest, that we will say that we could say that there was sort of a distillation of message. And that what I thought would happen, which is that a whole bunch of people who don't have jobs right now, yeah. you know, who are facing enormous yeah. precarity, who might have had family members who died from coronavirus yeah. or at the very least feel totally cooped up because they feel like their government failed them, mm-hmm. would take to the streets. Um, I don't think we see that happening right now, no. you know? and I don't know how it happens without full co-option and this turning entirely into an anti-Trump mm-hmm. thing, right? And then it would work. But I think that people don't want that to happen because then it is a yeah. full co-option and it becomes a completely different protest. And whether or not that's a good or bad thing, I think that, you know, at the beginning, I would have said that's a bad thing. But right now, I think that, like, maybe it is something that needs to happen as long as there's still a centering of black voices within that new, you know, second part of the movement. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I totally understand the skepticism that there wouldn't be. Because yeah. there never is, yeah. you know? And so... Yeah. Um, it's an extremely complicated thing, but um, and I'm not saying that as a way to like cop out of saying something, but I just think it's really complicated. Yeah. I just don't know what people yeah. do. Now, the one thing that I do think, Tammy, is really helpful and great, and this is the thing that I actually think matters the most, is that all these people are now kind of radicalized. Yeah. You know, like the wool's off the totally. eyes for a lot of these people. You know, we can make fun of the wall of moms because it's funny. But, like, you know, what you have is you have 200 to 500 white moms in Portland who have been tear-gassed repeatedly for three nights. It's like a radicalizing event for them. You know, like, their vision of America and American state power has been radically changed. It's happened around the country, you know, and that I think a lot of those people will enter fights like housing and schooling. I hope so. And I think that over time that there will be more support for those Mm -hmm. things. But... In terms of like the movement itself as like a street protest with a message yeah. you know changing into more anti-capitalist thing i don't know if that's that will happen mm-hmm. does, is, does that make sense as an answer? Yeah, i don't yeah. know like no, that's, that's, that's generally all. how i feel about this though
3: yeah yeah i mean it just feels like this stuff has to be imagined in terms of longer time periods it's not just totally. this year it goes totally. back yeah. probably to 08 right yeah. Yeah. or even iraq yeah and I think, I think it is true that the young gener- younger generations in the U.S. are progressively are progressively more progressive, mm-hmm. for whatever that's worth, because things are getting worse for them
2: Totally. than yeah. for every generation oh, before yeah. them. So. That's right.
3: Yeah.
1: yeah, like these kids have, I, I don't know, I think about it myself, or just like yeah. I can picture this world in which my kid has, like, much less uh, racial animus towards her, you mm-hmm. know, and is much more comfortable as an American – and yet lives a much more materially yes. worse life than I do. Yeah. You know? And <laughs> that's just fucking weird. That's weird, weird. yeah. Because we're I always told that the weird. problem with our kids is going to be racism, you know? It's just like, I don't know if racism is going to be your biggest problem. <laughs> I don't think so, no. I think being, I think being broke is going to be yeah. the biggest problem, you know? So, uh, And, you know, like that's under the context of, of Somebody who is going to be grow up wildly privileged and compared to all of her peers, I just don't know if it's going to matter. You know, um, we've had a lot of requests to add more structure to the show. Tammy, I think you're winning. You know, the, the Tammy stands are winning out over the J stands. Are just like let's just let it roll, you know, and let our genius flow out. Um, and so we want to do we want to do a reader question of the week right? And so Andy, you found one from uh, our readers. Again, you can always reach us either through Twitter DM, we're at, at @ttsgpod, or you can email at us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Those are two best ways, I think. Or if you want to just reach out to one of us, I think all three of our DMs are open, at least mine are, and you can just message me and I can, we can put it on the show. So Andy, what's our reader? What's our reader question? Alright,
3: this comes from someone named Clarion Tung. Sorry, I don't know what the gender of that is. Uh, they say, I'm a STEM Asian, I was thinking. Just as Jay pointed out, the distance <laughs> between professional East Asians and the Hmong policemen, there also is a similar distance between STEM and humanities Asians. STEM course loads leave little room for humanities classes or exposure to radical politics. Always in the library studying, and consequently, many STEM Asians enter the workforce with zero class or racial consciousness. Choosing to major in the humanities is rebellious for a lot of us, and so on and so on. So, I guess the question is, and I think I've, we've heard this from a few different listeners that they just never had an introduction to the stuff we talk about, but are mm-hmm. Asian American and have some sort of personal resonance with it. I see. So, I guess the question is, one, I guess one question is, you know, do you guys agree that? Was it your experience that uh, for a lot of your friends or a lot of family to study the humanities was rebellious? And Mm -hmm. uh, do you agree that there is this kind of division between STEM Asians and humanities (laughs) Asians? (laughs) Um, Did you guys major in humanities? I
2: assume. Yeah, my first reaction is just. Tammy also went to law school, so she's
1: like the she went to like a top five law school, so she's like the most Asian of all of the three of us.
2: (laughs) Um, I just love the idea that there's STEM Asians already. and humanities <laughs> Asians. It's like <laughs> something you're born with or something. Um,
1: <laughs> don't you think that's kind of true though? I think he's, I think, I think that, I think that's yeah. true. Right? Did you guys ever yeah. see that,
3: um, video? <laughs> I think from
1: maybe it's cause Annie and I went to Columbia and it was so pronounced there 20, right? like, cause you had
3: during the 2014, 15 BLM protests. I think there was a video of a protest in a library of students, and then yeah. suddenly they stop because someone says, "Hey," and it's an Asian no! man with glasses on.
2: I don't remember and that. This is
3: library. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's oh uh, that. That is, the,
1: is amazing. There's that video that went around that everyone was dunking on is like some Asian guy in Silicon Valley, I think. Right? Did you see that? A Chinese no. guy, and he's talking about how Black Lives Matter is bad, you know, and that if all you have to do is work hard. You know, um, that, yeah. yeah, I think there, I think this divide does exist. But I do wonder if Andy and I only think it exists because we went to a school with uh, C's. Right. You know, like whatever that stands for. like School the, of engineering, engineering and Sciences. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Where like the basically if you went to the School of Engineering and Science at Columbia, you're you almost certainly going to be Asian. Have the same exact haircut. Only hang out with other C's students and like not talk to any of the other people it's true and so I, if i'm insulting some of the C students within our listeners i apologize but i think you know what i'm talking about which is uh but that's kind of true at other schools right like yeah if you go to like purdue or something like that it's like there is definitely a stem type of asian that um probably is a little bit more yeah disinterested in this service sort of again
3: and i guess the other question was like why are why why the stem asian and why aren't we stem asians
1: because hmm. I'm bad. <laughs> I'm not that good at math. I, I would say. love to be a stem Asian Are you kidding? <laughs> like, I can think of nothing more more rewarding than like you know making shit in a lab or something like that instead of you know like writing same take over and over, <laughs> and, over and over again. <laughs> I don't know. Andy, what do you think? You've brought up this question. Do you have to answer it? Uh, Point us in a I've, good direction. i thought
3: about this. If I didn't, you know, this, we always talk about debate. If I, I always wonder if I didn't do debate, what would I have done instead? I wasn't particularly like a science genius or anything. But like, I like math classes up until then. Maybe I would have done some engineering, something. I don't know. Uh, it was never pushed upon. Like, my family never pushed me in that direction. But I think they would have been happy to. And my, mm-hmm. my cousin... I my cousin explicitly had a very like long stressful falling out with their parent because my aunt like really wanted them to major in engineering and they did not want to and this became like years and years and then eventually they just double majored in engineering and like never did anything with it so i think there was a yeah. that's a real thing like it's not like why it happens most obviously i, I think from my family's experiences that their the older generation comes from a country that sees science and engineering as a way out of poverty. And so I've heard a lot from my aunts and uncles and parents that they didn't have any particular passion for accounting or engineering or whatever they study, but they did it just to go overseas and mm-hmm. to yeah. right to, to, for educational opportunities. And they wish, they really wish they could have um, not do what I do, but do, do something else, right? Mm-hmm. So I think, I don't know, I wonder, like, maybe all of our parents they let us do humanities because they didn't want, they didn't like the fact that they didn't get to choose what they what they, what they they did for a living. Hmm. Um, and that might be like, a, that's kind of like a crossroads that happens for a lot of second generation immigrants.
1: I think it's class-based, you know, in a lot of ways where I think uh, the, if you're poor and you don't think that America is going to be fair to your kid, then you have them go into the humanities, or not the humanities, you go into them into a hard stem because you think at least they can prove their worth there and they'll be judged on in a meritocracy, right? Yeah. Like that's something that is talked about quite a bit. And I think if you're like a rich Chinese person now, your kid is almost certainly at RISD making <laughs> fucking memes, you know? <laughs> uh, but that's a new thing, right? Like that's a new thing. Like that's in the last yeah. like 15 years or something like that. When I was growing up, there were none of those kids, yeah. you know? Like it was like inconceivable. Um, or... Now there are all these Asian writers, yeah. you know, and like novelists and stuff like that. And even when I was in graduate school in 2004, it's like only a handful of Asian American novelists. And now it feels like yeah. there's yeah, like 600 sure. of them. Um, so I think the expansion has come with like an expansion of wealth. Yeah. Right. And that um, I think STEM Asians are probably generally still, you know, I think they're either recent immigrants or they're probably come from a more economically and probably much more from the enclaves right like from like a, like a poor asian neighborhood where there aren't mm. a lot of asian kids i think that that that's different than you know like a rich kid who goes to exeter and then goes to harvard and, and says like you know i want to become a poet
3: or yeah. something which is uh which is also a thing mm. tammy have... do you ever consider doing science
2: no it is for the reasons that jay was saying like i'm no good at it but I think, um, I didn't see the class thing as much. I saw it more or the way, I guess what I've seen is that, cause you could, as you guys said, you could go to law school or become a banker after doing humanities study, you know, so it's not so much about like, yeah. the actual thing you're studying, but the, whether you go in a professional direction or in a direction that's much less advisable <laughs> economically. But I think that the question also made me think about, um, that I'm grateful that I think a lot of the kids I went to college with who were pre-med or like hard science, actually still like explored different politics and art stuff. And that I hope that colleges aren't so, that it isn't so like stratified where, you know, politics and other sorts of exploration are really cut out of scientific inquiry. Because there's so many amazing scientists and mathematicians in the past who've also been activists and critics of our yeah. society. So... I don't know this person's age or, you know, I, I thank Clarion for, for listening and reading, but yeah, I I wonder if there's something broader to be concerned about if, if this is like a real division, you know, and that those kids aren't actually being exposed to other stuff.
0: All right.
1: I think we're (laughs) good. Uh, thank you for listening to our show. Um, we do this every week. Uh, I told you already how you can reach us, but if you want to reach us again, If you need to hear again, we're at TTSGPod on Twitter. That's probably the best way to reach us. And uh, until next week, Tammy, enjoy Montana. Like, it seems actually very nice to be in Montana right now, all things considered. uh, I am very jealous. Are you going to do a lot of hiking and stuff? I think so,
2: yeah. You guys are welcome here. We can have separate pods.